Hello and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter and I'm happy to share Time Magazine with you. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. And materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I'm going to start with a final uh, seven-question article uh, from the October 23rd issue of Time magazine. It is written by Belinda Luscombe, who is interviewing Caitlin Moran, the feminist author on the paucity of the patriarchy and the overlooked population addressed in her new book titled, What About Men? Question. Is it true that it's easier to be a woman than a man now? In one respect, in that we women are able to talk about problems of gender and men still seem not to have invented that technology in a way that isn't damaging, angry, and woman-blaming. We can confess when we've got a problem. We can talk to each other about it. And then there's this amazing century-old thing called feminism that means that if your mother or your friends don't have the solution, someone's written a blog about it, someone's written a movie about it, Beyonce has written a song about it. Men don't seem to have gotten to that point of being able to go, hey, this scares me. Does anybody else suffer from this problem? Let's form a campaign and bring in legislation that changes our lives forever. Question two. You write that the patriarchy is screwing over men as much as women. Is it patriarchy or is it changes in technology and global trade? Answer. I think all men presume that they're in the patriarchy and they're winning. No. There's no guys at the top of this tree. There's 10 guys at the top of this tree who are doing okay. But you're being screwed over as well because you're the guy that scared he's about to be punched when you go to school. You're the one that's been told not to cry. You're the one that doesn't have paternity leave. Question three. To what do you attribute the rise of people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate? Answer. The only people who are talking about masculinity at the moment are people like Peterson and Tate. I think the offer of masculinity they make is not only retrogressive and damaging, but simply won't work. I don't know anyone in the world whose anxiety, depression, and unhappiness has been solved by power. What they need is empowerment. I wanted to write a book that encouraged the liberal men to start talking about men again. Question 4. You advance the theory that young boys' fine motor skills set them back emotionally. Can you elaborate? Answer. Boys' fine motor skills develop later than girls. So, very on, there's a very negative association for boys with writing and reading. In their teens, they're reading graphic novels, whereas girls are reading stuff about normal lives. Why is there no culture of books about normal boys crossing from childhood to adult? It seems like they need it. Question 5. You advise young men to make sure that sex takes place in a committed relationship. Do you find it surprising that you're aligning yourself with a more traditional view? Answer. My big inspiration for writing that chapter was that young men did not want to talk about the prevalence of sexual assault for teenage girls because it was more worrying to them that they might get falsely accused of rape. You are vanishingly unlikely to be falsely accused of rape. But if this is something you're worried about, then let me give you some very straightforward advice. Make sure your sex partner is someone you trust that you think is unlikely to start lying about you. Question six. What do you think your chances are, as a noted feminist, of getting young men to read your book? Answer. My favorite thing is to find an area that's taboo, difficult, and awkward, and to find a way of starting a conversation where you can blame me. Moms can read this and find a modern, relaxed, humorous, realistic way to talk to their sons about things like violence and extreme online pornography, which are otherwise difficult topics to raise in the middle of Christmas Day. And the final question, did writing this book change your mind about men? Answer, 
If you're a 15-year-old boy, in the last 10 years, female empowerment is all you will ever have heard. Their dads know that this is a recent and mild corrective to 10,000 years of patriarchy. The boys just don't have that perspective, and so they are angry. All right, moving on now to the November 6th, 2023 issue of Time. We move to the brief opener. This is on page 10. And it includes reporting by Olivia Waxman and Julia Garthan. Here's the brief opener. A Newer World Order by Will Henshaw. Tighter export controls on computer chips escalate the United States' rivalry with China. Not by chance did the era of worldwide free trade, globalization, coincide with the hope of successive U.S. governments that the capitalism that was lifting billions of people out of poverty would also show China in the merits of democracy. The two were invariably linked, after all, in the Cold War that the West had won. But China preferred to launch a new rivalry, promoting a new authoritarian system that offers the wealth of capitalism while exploiting elements, surveillance, centralization, of what generates so much of that wealth, digital tech. That's why the Biden administration announced on October 17th that it is tightening export controls on semiconductor chips used for artificial intelligence and the equipment used to manufacture them. Artificial intelligence is considered key to efficiencies that could provide not only huge advantages in business and commerce, but also even more critical advantages in a country's military and defense. To ensure that more semiconductors are made in America, the administration last year hailed passage of the Chips and Science Act, and to prevent China from acquiring or producing advanced chips, the new Commerce Department rules aims both to close loopholes in controls announced a year ago and to account for technological developments since. But the controls are also a sharp escalation in the contest for technological superiority between the United States and China, even as the Biden administration tries to cool tensions between the countries in other domains. The chips themselves are increasingly crucial for the development of state-of-the-art AI systems. And though some analysts question the control's efficacy, if they succeed, China could be left behind. Protecting our foundational technologies with a small yard and high fence is how White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has previously described restrictions implying the rules are tailored to affect only advanced technology with relevance to national security. But others say the restrictions go further, edging into the realms of business and trade. A report by Gregory Allen, director of the Wadwani Center for AI and Advanced Technologies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies think tank, argued that because the restrictions are industry agnostic and aim to prevent China from ever matching U.S. capabilities, they marked the beginning of a new era in U.S.-China relations. That unsettles some United States tech companies. China is a huge market for chip manufacturers, accounting for 20 to 25 percent of American company NVIDIA's data center revenue. The stocks of chip makers, including NVIDIA, plummeted after the announcement, and the Semiconductor Industry Association warned that overly broad unilateral controls risk harming the United States semiconductor ecosystem without advancing national security, as they encourage overseas customers to look elsewhere. The industry's apprehension is one measure of the administration's seriousness. Analysts and 
policymakers have argued that the 2022 restrictions allowed the sale of chip manufacturing equipment to companies like Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation, a Chinese state-owned chip manufacturer, and were not properly enforced. They have also been accusations of Chinese AI developers smuggling chips into the country. Chinese chip developers, experts argue, have been able to continue catching up with the technological frontier, and Chinese AI developers have been continuing their work apace. Last year's restriction contained major loopholes, says Dylan Patel, chief analyst at Semi-Analysis, a semiconductor industry analysis firm. Semiconductor manufacturer's business was not really impacted at all. The updates have tightened restrictions on the sales of chips, but Patel says they still have left possible openings for the sale of chip manufacturing equipment. With further restrictions on the type of chips it can import, but lenience around chip manufacturing equipment, Patel predicts that the latest rules will encourage development of China's domestic chip industry. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said export controls were likely to be updated at least annually as the technology continues to advance. On one level, this can seem really technocratic and boring. The chip performance thresholds and interconnect bandwidth, but at the end of the day, these most advanced chips are a huge area of geopolitical competition, says Paul Share. Executive Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for a New American Security, a military affairs think tank. I think we're going to continue to see Chinese actors and other global companies, including U.S. companies, be responsive and change their behavior, but also find ways to continue to make money and advance their own interests despite this. Next article in the section titled The Bulletin from page 13, written by Alice Park. Headline, Bed Bugs Aren't Just a Problem for Paris. The news reports are alarming, to say the least. Paris, the city known for its style, cuisine, and romance, has a bed bug problem. But what's behind the invasion? How did the insects manage to infiltrate so much of the city? With Paris hosting the first Olympics in the post-COVID-19 era next summer, those questions are not just matters for idle conversation. Bedbug Basics Bedbugs feed almost exclusively on human blood and find their meals by homing in on the carbon dioxide we exhale. Because they are cautious creatures, they feed when we are asleep or relatively immobile, while sitting on a couch or chair, before scurrying back into tiny cracks and crevices in mattresses or between walls and floors. They are remarkably hardy genetically and can inbreed with little problem for generations. Bread to be bad. Today's bedbugs are resistant to nearly every insecticide available. While DDT and organophosphates effectively controlled bedbug populations for decades, after those chemicals were banned for harming human health, the insects developed resistance to the remaining pesticides so that we now have thick-skinned, hard-drinking, mutant bedbugs says Deanie Miller, a professor of entomology at Virginia Tech. Their thicker echoskeletons keep insecticides out, and they also have enzymes that can break down chemicals even if they do end up absorbing some. Battle plan. So bedbugs persist in any city, including Paris, because getting rid of them is expensive and involved. The best method involves a multi-pronged strategy, including some combined co combination of pesticides, 
a fungus-based treatment that kills infected bugs and heating an entire dwelling to 125 degrees Fahrenheit or above, or using silica dust to suffocate them. Vacuuming visible bugs is also an important first step. Ultimately, however, leaving it up to individuals to manage them may only keep the bug population thriving. Unless they are dealt with on a broader, society-wide scale, the problem will not go away, says Zachary DeVries, an assistant professor of entomology at the University of Kentucky. Moving on now, also in the November 6th issue of Time Magazine, we are looking at mega-author John Grisham returns to his roots in Memphis and on the page. This is by Molly Ball, with additional reporting by Julia Zorthian. Grisham Thick Quick Facts It's elementary. Grisham served in the Mississippi legislature from 1983 to 1990. He ran, he says, seeking to end the state's shameful status as the only one in the Union not to offer public kindergarten. Almost famous. Grisham rarely gets recognized in public, and he likes it that way. It's the perfect degree of fame, he says. I tell people I'm a famous writer in a country where nobody reads. By the numbers. The first print run of Grisham's debut novel, A Time to Kill, was just 5,000 copies. Today, his books have sold more than 400 million copies. If it ain't broke... Grisham's routine has not changed in many years. Starting on January 1st, he holds up to begin writing that year's thriller. Beginning around 7 a.m., he types on a computer disconnected from the Internet, typically writing about a 1,000 words a day. He begins by going over the previous day's work, and he's usually done by noon. On a rack at the front of Burke's bookstore in Memphis is a postcard showing the shop in an earlier era, overhung by a billboard that's no longer there. Grisham is coming, it says in big red letters, next to a photo of the youthful lawyer turned author. His brow is knitted, mouth pursed. Below, a line of people wait for the store to open. John Grisham picks up the postcard and looks at it. Oh, yeah, I remember those days, he says in his honey-thick drawl. The image is from a book signing for the Chamber in 1994. It's a memento of the heady days of his early success, when he released a succession of bestsellers that became hit movies. People camped out in line for his signings. Studios got in bidding wars for his film rights. And stores could barely keep his book in stock much has changed since. Publishing has fallen on hard times, while the legal arena Grisham writes about has never seemed more tormented. What has not changed is Grisham's steady commitment. Since breaking out with the legal thriller The Firm in 1991, he's published at least one book a year. 48 consecutive number one New York Times bestsellers a feat no other writer has matched. This October, he has gone back to the beginning. His new book, titled The Exchange, is a sequel to The Firm, the 1993 movie version of which starred Tom Cruise as lawyer Mitch McDeer. The new book was inspired in part by Cruise's reprise in Top Gun, Maverick. Its release has Grisham feeling reflective. When I started writing the book, I really got nostalgic, he says. He's not the only one. A late career Grisham renaissance may be in the offing. Feature films of Grisham's novels Calico Joe, The Confession, The Partner, and The Racketeer are all in development, while several others are being turned into TV series, according to his agent David Gurnett. Grisham's books 
have shaped the way millions see the law and its discontents, tackling themes like racial violence, corporate greed, environmental destruction, and capital punishment. By his own account, he's obsessed with injustice and often takes a novel as an opportunity to explore an issue. But he never wants readers to feel they're being lectured to, he tells me. I don't spend a lot of time delivering messages, he says. I want to tell a story in such a way that the reader is caught up in it and the pages turn. On this late August morning, Grisham has come to Burke's to see the owners, his friends Corey and Cheryl Messler, who, like every bookstore and Walmart in the country, are preparing for his book to drop. Mitch is back, Grisham tells Corey Messler. Grisham, now based outside Charlottesville, Virginia, grew up in small towns in Arkansas and Mississippi, the son of a sharecropper. He remembers picking cotton as a young child, fingers bleeding. He put himself through college and law school then scraped by for a few years in private practice in Mississippi, hustling for clients while also serving as a Democrat in the Mississippi House of Representatives. Then, in his spare time, starting at 5.30 every morning, he drafted a novel in longhand, inspired by a court scene he had witnessed, A Time to Kill, about a black man who takes the law into his old hands after his daughter is raped by racist rednecks and the lawyer who defends him, was published by an imprint of an obscure Christian press, and he implored local bookstores to stock it. But Grisham was already at work on another book he hoped would have more commercial. The tale of a Harvard-educated tax lawyer from a humble background who moves to Memphis to work for a mysterious firm only to find himself caught between the Chicago mob and the FBI. I set the book in Memphis because I hadn't been anywhere else, he tells me. The firm didn't have a publisher when a scout smuggled the manuscript to Los Angeles, sparking an improbable bidding war and a $600,000 contract with Paramount Pictures. By the time it was published in 1991, it was hotly anticipated. The firm went on to sell more than 7 million copies. It was on the firm's publicity tour, Grisham says, that he picked up a bit of a career-defining wisdom. He overheard a publishing executive mention that the biggest authors, Tom Clancy, Robert Ludlum, Cindy Sheldon, tended to release a book a year. It should be obvious to someone like me, who's a big reader, somebody who wants to write bestsellers. But I had never thought about that, he says. So I hustled back to the farm in Oxford and finished the Pelican Brief in no time. That discipline would make him rich and famous. Grisham tells the story with humility, as a series of lucky breaks for which he's grateful. It's also a story of the purest type of publishing success, a book by a nobody that succeeds on its own merits. The firm changed everything for Grisham. He left the law and never looked back. For years, he and his wife, Renee, would refer to BF and AF before the firm and after the firm. In Memphis, Grisham and I visit the Cotton Exchange, where Mitch, in the firm, meets his accomplice Tammy as they're planning his turn against his mob front law firm. There's a plaque on the stately old stone building. John Grisham, it reads in raised bronze letters, with several lines of text about his success and connection to the city. I had nothing to do with it, he says of the plaque. In the exchange, Mitch returns to Memphis on a legal errand and stays at the famed Peabody Hotel, taking a trip down memory lane that serves as a summary of the first novel's plot. Otherwise, there's little connection between the two stories. The exchange takes place largely in New York City, where Mitch is a partner at a massive firm and in Muammar Gaddafi's Libya, 
where he goes on behalf of a client. This Mitch seems less like the man from the firm and more like a Tom Cruise character, and the ending feels less like a resolution than a cliffhanger. I tell Grisham I found the book perplexing and kept waiting for the mob to return. Grisham, in his disarming way, agrees with me. That's the biggest problem with the book, he says, as if congratulating me for solving a puzzle. Fifteen years later, where is the mafia? Here he is, one of the most famous writers in America, basically admitting his new book makes no sense. Yet he does so merrily, with the good humor perhaps of an author who knows he's review-proof. It's a Grisham book. People will buy it. People will enjoy it. Who am I to take that from them? I decided to let it slide and see how many people comment on it, he says. I think it works as it is. But you do have that nagging question. Grisham owes his career to the firm. Returning to it was daunting. I was afraid to bring Mitch back because, you know, he'll always be the guy in my first big book, he says. At the same time, you can't take this stuff too seriously. Let's bring him back and have some fun. I like the story now that it's done. And, he adds, there's the possibility of doing it again. All right, moving on to the section titled The View. This is from the area of health. Headline, The Case for Anxiety, by David Rosmarin. He is a professor at Harvard, Harvard Medical School and author of the book Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Anxiety. The very word evokes discomfort. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, half of young American adults deal with it. So, it's no wonder that this epidemic is causing us so much concern. But, as a clinician and researcher, I see a much bigger problem. In our society's quest to be anxiety-free, we tend to miss out on many valuable opportunities presented by this very normal human emotion. In and of itself, anxiety is not deadly. Quite the contrary. Being able to feel anxious shows that our fight-or-flight system is operational, which is an indicator of brain and sensory health. Once we accept that anxious arousal is a normal, albeit uncomfortable, part of life, we can use it to thrive. Here are three ways that anxiety can help you. 1. It can build your emotional strength and resilience. If you want to build emotional strength and resilience, you need to face some degree of mental adversity. Of course, traumatic events and abuse tend to cause more harm than good, but the experience of and perseverance through occasional anxiety, stress, and tension substantially increases your emotional fortitude. For example, one of the most effective treatments for anxiety is exposure therapy, which involves systematically confronting one's fears head-on, in reasonable and increasing doses over time. With the help of a therapist, individuals with phobias to anything from snakes or spiders to heights or medical procedures gradually encounter that which makes them anxious. As they exercise their emotional strength, voluntarily and courageously, they become desensitized to their anxiety and its effects decrease. In my clinical practice, I have treated hundreds of patients with exposure therapy, and in many instances, individuals emerge not only less phobically anxious, but also with greater resilience in general. In one particularly memorable case, I helped a young woman overcome a severe case of hypochondriasis, anxiety fixated on her health, with this method. 
Years later, when her newborn child had a serious health complication requiring life-saving surgery, she handled the situation with incredible fortitude and calm. The second way, it can increase your emotional intimacy and connection. Humans are social creatures. The number one predictor of happiness and flourishing in late life is not great genes, financial success, or fame. It's the quality of our relationships. Clinical science has identified that sharing our anxieties with our loved ones was one of the most effective strategies to build connection. When my patients learn to open up and share their anxieties with their partners, they almost always report a greater sense of emotional intimacy. Even in the most secure relationships, we naturally feel some anxiety we receive is truly unconditional. As relationship expert Sue Johnson teaches, when we embrace and express our need for connection during challenging moments, for example, I'm having a hard time right now and could really use your support, it begets greater connection and turns our anxiety into love. The third way anxiety can help you, it can help you recalibrate and rebalance. From time to time, all of us find ourselves at the end of our rope. Our responsibilities pile up, our resources break down, and we just don't have enough time to get everything done. We feel uncomfortably anxious most, if not all, of the time. Many times when my patients are overwhelmed, they tend to take on more demands. Ironically, they take on additional projects at work, volunteer for community service, and provide additional support to their friends. It's easier to avoid thinking about how overwhelmed we feel and pretend that everything's okay when we're focused on our work. But working harder, faster, and longer hours when one is already ragged can create chronic stress, which has been associated with heart disease, cancer, and stroke, as well as numerous less severe medical conditions. When we feel genuinely overwhelmed and anxious because of stress, it's our body's way of telling us to recalibrate and rebalance. Nobody is truly limitless. When we heed our internal cues and acknowledge our fallibility, we emerge more focused and healthier overall and also less stressed and anxious. Anxiety can be a healthy, helpful emotion that is a constructive aspect of human life. It can foster emotional connection when we convey our vulnerable feelings to others. And, in the form of stress, it can serve as an internal barometer to remain balanced and healthy. It's about time we start putting it to good use. Moving on to the View Inbox, titled The DC Brief by Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent. Allie Phillips never wanted to be a politician, but she had always wanted to be a mom of two. When Phillips found out she was pregnant in November of 2022, her five-year-old daughter Adelie was thrilled too. Her eyes got big and her jaw just dropped open, Phillips says. She and her husband planned to name the baby Miley Rose. But after a scan, when she was around 19 weeks pregnant, doctors told Phillips that the fetus had problems with several organs, conditions not compatible with life outside the womb, a doctor told Phillips. Miley Rose would likely die before birth. The longer Phillips stayed pregnant, the worse her own health could become. Phillips, who lives in North Tennessee, could not get an abortion in her home state. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Tennessee enacted one of the strictest abortion bans in the nation. 
Phillips and her husband had to travel almost a thousand miles to get one. Shortly after she returned, she was approached by the Center for Reproductive Rights, which represents patients denied medically necessary abortions. She also met with her state representative, Republican Jeff Burkhart, to ask his help writing a law expanding abortion options for parents in situation like hers. When Phillips told him about her pregnancy loss, he said, I thought women could only have a miscarriage in their first pregnancy, she recalls. The lack of knowledge, the lack of education is astounding. That's when she began to think about running for his seat. It may be an uphill battle. Donald Trump won the county by double digits in 2020. But abortion bans have reshuffled politics, even in conservative areas. Moving now into the section on the world titled Loved Ones. Across 75 years, Israel has built itself around a military so formidable in battle that the country qualifies as a warrior state. But for the 2,000 years before that, the story of the Jews was one of perseverance through persecution, flight, and the kind of intimate house-to-house slaughter Israelis awoke to on the morning of October 7th. What Hamas recorded on smartphones and uploaded on social media was a 21st century program. The massacre of more than 1,400 people renewed and validated the dread that resides in every Jewish Israeli as a kind of inheritance, the embedded collective memory of trauma that has kept a society's sense of confidence eggshell thin, even behind the most powerful fighting force in the Middle East. What that military is directing onto the Gaza Strip, 6,000 bombs in the first six days, had, by October 17th, killed more than 3,000 people. For Palestinians, the Israel-Hamas war is likely the worst trauma since the Nakba, or catastrophe as they refer to the 1948 victory of the Jewish army that, in establishing a Jewish homeland, exiled more than 700,000 Arabs who claimed the same land. Their descendants, defiant presidents in blockaded Gaza, where 2.2 million people are ruled by Hamas, and on the West Bank, where 3 million people chafe under Israeli military occupation, has posed a persistent challenge not only for Israel's security, but also for the moral code cultivated during the millennia that Jews had not a state, but a tradition. Revenge hangs in the air over Gaza along with Cordite. And just as no Gentile can apprehend the horror of the October 7th Sabbath, nothing can communicate the experience of bombardment. Imagine enduring both. The roughly 200 hostages Hamas carried away at gunpoint were awakened at dawn by the terror of a missile onslaught and faced the darkness of Gaza beneath the thunder of Israeli munitions. They form a kind of human bridge behind, between two realms. I can only hope that she's being held in Gaza, said the son of 74-year-old Vivian Silver, a peace activist missing from her kibbutz. What a terrible hope that is. With power cut off by Israel, accounts of the profound suffering in Gaza are largely being told from a distance. And in a conflict that has always been about competing narratives, Hamas ensured that attention would be on the hostages and their loved ones. The families speak wrenchingly about what they know and the torment of what they don't know. Searching for hope, they find themselves at the mercy both of terrorists 
and of the intelligence apparatus of an Israeli government that failed them on October 7th, then ignored them in the chaotic days that followed. But they have their fellow citizens. After the worst loss of Jewish lives since the Holocaust, it was Israelis, the legions rising to donate blood, to prepare food, to report for duty, who confirmed why their nation exists. Next is an essay from page 44 of the November 6th issue. Headline, The World's Job During the War by Yuval Noah Harari. He is a historian, philosopher, and the best-selling author of Sapiens, Homo Deus, and Unstoppable Us. Aviv Kutz, a member of Kibbutz Kvar Aza, was a childhood friend of a very close friend of mine. Aviv and his wife, Livnat, and their three children have lived in Kfar Aza for years. Although the Kutz family endured many Hamas rocket and mortar attacks on their kibbutz, parents and children continued to hope for peace. Every year, the Kutz family organized a kite-flying festival meant to create a small, peaceful space in the war zone. Colorful kites, some displaying peace messages, were flown near the border fence with Gaza. Livnat's sister, who participated in the festival in previous years, said that the idea is to fly the kites near the fence, to show Gaza that we only want to live in peace. This year's kite festival was planned for October 7th. A few years before, a few hours before it began, Hamas terrorists invaded and occupied the kibbutz. All five members of the Kutz family were slaughtered. The mind boggles at such atrocities. Why do human beings do such things? What did Hamas hope to achieve? Unlike conventional warfare that aims to capture territory, Hamas's terrorism is a form of psychological warfare that aims to spread terror and sow seeds of hatred in the minds of millions, Israelis, Palestinians, and other people throughout the whole world. Hamas is different from other Palestinian organizations like the PLO and should not be equated with the whole Palestinian people. Since its foundation, Hamas has adamantly refused to recognize Israel's right to exist and has done everything in its power to ruin every chance for peace between Israelis and Palestinians and between Israel and the Arab world. The immediate background to the current cycle of violence is the peace treaties signed between Israel and several Gulf states and the hoped-for peace treaty between Israel and Saudi Arabia. This treaty was expected not only to normalize relations between Israel and most of the Arab world, but also to somewhat alleviate the suffering of millions of Palestinians living under Israeli occupation, and to restart the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Nothing alarms Hamas more than the possibility of peace. This is why it launched its attack, and this is why it murdered the Kutz family and more than a thousand other Israeli civilians. What Hamas has done is a crime against humanity in the deepest sense of the term. A crime against humanity is not just about killing humans. It's about destroying our trust in humanity. Hamas's crimes cannot be justified by blaming them on past Israeli conduct. Two wrongs don't make a right. 
there is much to criticize Israel for, for holding millions of Palestinians for decades under occupation, and for abandoning in recent years any serious attempt to make peace. However, the murder of the Kutz family and the many other atrocities committed by Hamas were not meant to restart the priest process, nor are they likely to end the occupation. Instead, the war Hamas launched inflicts immense sufferings on millions of Palestinians. In its war against Hamas, Israel has a duty to defend its territory and its citizens, but it must also defend its humanity. Palestinian civilians deserve to enjoy peace and prosperity in their homeland, and even in the midst of conflict, their basic human rights should be recognized by all sides. This refers not only to Israel, but also to Egypt, which shares a border with the Gaza Strip, and which has partially sealed that border. As for Hamas, it and its, its supporters should be excommunicated by humanity. The aims of the Gaza War should be clear. Hamas should be totally disarmed, and the Gaza Strip should be demilitarized, so that Palestinian civilians could live dignified lives within it, and Israeli civilians could live without fear alongside it. Until these aims are achieved, the struggle to maintain our humanity will be difficult. Most Israelis are psychologically incapable at this moment of empathizing with the Palestinians. Their mind is filled to the brim with our own pain, and no space is left to even acknowledge the pain of others. Many of the people who tried to hold such a space, like the Kutz family, are dead or deeply traumatized. Most Palestinians are in an analogous situation. Their minds, too, are so filled with pain, they cannot see our pain. But outsiders who are not themselves immersed in pain should make an effort to empathize with all suffering humans rather than lazily seeing only part of the terrible reality. It is the job of outsiders to help maintain a space for peace. We deposit this peaceful space with you because we cannot hold it right now. Take good care of it for us, so that one day, when the pain begins to heal, both Israelis and Palestinians might inhabit that space. Moving on now to the Times Best Inventions of 2023. I will share a few of the many suggestions. This one is about accessibility playing with braille, Lego braille bricks. Once available only through schools and other educational institutions, Lego braille bricks, which teach visually impaired children necessary tactile skills, are finally coming to consumers' homes. The set, currently available in English and French, with more languages on the way, takes the classic 2x4 building brick and modifies its knobs to correspond with the Braille alphabet numbers and symbols. The pieces are compatible with all Lego products. We developed these for everyone so that even sighted children and family members can show their interest in learning Braille, says Rasmus Logstrup Jensen, Lego's creative lead on partnerships and innovation. And that was written by John Mihaly. The next innovative invention for 2023 is in the field of medical care. Accurate insulin, beta-bionics, islet, bionic pancreas. 
nearly 7.5 million American adults take insulin. But getting the dosage right can be tough, says Ed Damiano, co-founder of Beta Bionics, inspired by his diabetic son. Damiano spent 20 years creating the Eyelet, a credit card size AI-powered smart device that links to a tube plugged into a patient's body. Similar to existing options, it monitors glucose levels every five minutes. Unlike others on the market, it dispenses appropriate insulin microdoses when needed. The device was approved by the FDA in May and recently gained Medicare and Medicaid approval. And that was written by Chris Stokel Walker. The next new invention is from the world of transportation. Headline, a self-driving first. Mercedes-Benz drive pilot. Current cars self-driving modes still require hands near the wheel and eyes on the road. But with an advanced new multi-sensor system called drive pilot, Mercedes-Benz's 2024 S-Class and EQS sedans are the first cars certified for level three self-driving in the U.S. in California and Nevada. It means that under certain conditions, mainly highway traffic jams with low speeds and a well-mapped road, you can completely cede control of the vehicle. And we will move on to the world of food and drink. Headline, Crunchy Convenience. Kraft Heinz 360 Crisp. Microwaved food is convenient, but not as satisfying as fresh cooked fare. Kraft Heinz has a solution. The 360 Crisp process, which debuted with a new product, Lunchables Grilled Cheesies. The sandwich comes in a paperboard container with a susceptor that, when microwaved, directs heat to all the right places, leaving no bite undercooked or singed. You have that perfectly crisp outside, that gooey melty inside, and none of that sogginess or dryness, says Alan Kleinerman, Vice President of Distribution at Kraft. And we will end there with our coverage of uh, important new inventions for 2023. Again, I need to remind you that you have been listening to a recording for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Arizona are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.